Excellent. All right. Are you going to stay sitting there or do you want to go back, back and sit with somebody? Do you want to go sit with Josh? Or? Good morning. This seating arrangement is like a really bad receding hairline. Um, in, in the olden days in uh, Wales, this is really loud this end as well, Alan, just you know. Um, in the olden days, if you go in an old Welsh church, they used to have plaques on all the seats because people actually bought their seats. And today, people think that's utterly ludicrous. But my observation of this church is you still do the same thing. You sit in the same seat every single week of your life as if there's a plaque right there. So I want you to consider a, a new year, a new seat. There is like always row two and three completely spare. So I'm going to be looking next week to see who might claim row two and row three. And in all seriousness, it is helpful because if we can sit at the front, it helps guests when they come sit at the back. There's nothing worse than when you're a guest and you're like, the only spare seat is by the pastor on the front row. That's not helpful. And so if we can start sitting at the front, that would be wonderful. Well, let's turn in our Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 5. We are presently just going through a short series called A Heart for Here. And the heart behind this series is to give us an opportunity to really catch a fresh glimpse of the beauty of God's great plan for the church. And he does have a plan for the church. He loves the church. And so today we're going to be looking at what it means to have a passion for the church. So I've called this message a passion for here. And we're going to read together Ephesians 5 verses 22 to 25. This is the word of the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and his himself, its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Let's pray. Lord, I do thank you for your word. I thank you for the way it it stirs our hearts. And where the Holy Spirit is present, our hearts do invariably get stirred as we gather around your word. Because as a shepherd and a sheep, we hear your voice. We recognize you talking to us and calling us and quickening our hearts. Lord, would you help us this morning to love what you love? Would you help us as we gather around your word to once again look at not only what it means to love you, but to actually love what you love? And would it all be for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of the great joys of pastoral ministry over the last 22 years of my life has been being involved in in people's wedding days. There are many joys of being a pastor. There's some hard things about being a pastor. You're usually with people in the highs of their life and then the profound lows of their life. But one of the highs of people's lives was obviously their wedding day. And like you, I get to enjoy, in particular on a wedding day, the entrance of the bride. I just get to experience it differently because usually I'm here and they're right there. 
You know, when we do the entrance of the bride, it always happens the same way. I usually talk to the groom and the, the groomsmen up at the front and just prepare them for what they're about to experience. I then go out and greet the bride and her dad, and we often pray together and really try and slow her heart rate down just a little to be able to enjoy what is about to take in place. And then I come in and I ask people to be upstanding, and then we all do the same thing. We stand and we turn around, don't we? Because we want to see the bride coming down the aisle. And so the music begins and you're hoping to see the bride, but you see the bridesmaids first and they do that walk of, I know I'm not the one, but I hope I look okay. You know, they do that <laughs> first and, and they gather at the front and, and stand there and then eventually you see the bride come to the back and everybody's affected. And as soon as she starts to make her way down, everybody in the congregation does the same thing. They're looking at the bride, and then they look at the groom. No one's looking at the bride anymore. They're looking at the groom. Because we all want to see what's happening on his face, don't we? And realistically, what happens every time is really similar. What you see in that moment is the love of that bridegroom for his bride. He's affected. Because this is the love of his life. I still remember it for me, the 15th of April in the year 2000. I could not believe that Emma Davis, as was, was walking towards me. I couldn't believe it. In a moment of insanity, she said yes to me. And now, she's walking towards me. And in my mind, she looked like the most beautiful woman in the world. I couldn't even tell you if there was any congregation there. I didn't care less. I'm just looking at her. I'm trying to avoid even her dad's eye contact. I'm just looking at her. (laughs) And she is walking towards me, and I was just overwhelmed. If I could have just slowed that moment down and lived in it, I would have. Because that's my bride. That's my lady. Walking towards me, looking wonderful, who is both beautiful on the outside and the inside. You know, when you look at a groom's face on his wedding day, you see something of his love and his passion for his bride. And each and every time, what we also see if we pay attention is a dim yet wonderful reflection of Christ's love and passion for his bride. See, if you want to know how he feels about his bride, this is how he feels. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. If you want to know how Christ feels about his bride, he so loves her, he's so passionate about her that he literally gave his life away for her. That groom's face in that moment is just a dim reflection of how Christ feels about his beautiful and wonderful bride. John Stott, just by way of reminder, he says what stands out in Paul's development of this theme of the bride is the sacrificial steadfastness of the heavenly bridegroom's covenant love for her. He chose her from eternity past. He set his affections upon her. And then buying her back from sin, he gently sanctifies and cleanses her, preparing her for himself. His love for his bride is not flighty. It's not given to whim. For it is zealous. And it is unchanging. See, here's the reality. Jesus is passionate in love with his bride. And his passion for her is not flighty, it's not given to whim, it is zealous and it isn't changing. So here's the question for us this morning. 
The question I want us all to consider for our lives is simply this. If Jesus is so passionate about the church, then does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? See, here's the reality in God's word, in Ephesians 5 verse 1, actually, we're called to be imitators of God. We're called to become like him, to not only love him, but love what he loves. And in Romans chapter 8 verse 29, we're called to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We're called to become like him, to not only imitate him, but increasingly actually be like him. And so let me ask you, if Jesus then, the one we're called to be conformed to, is so passionate about his bride, then does your life and does my life reflect a similar passion for the church? It's something we must wrestle with. And we must understand as biblically defined. Now I'm aware that this can be a hard question to get our hands around. How do I feel about the bride of Christ? I, I, I don't know. She's kind of nice. I mean, it's, it's a difficult one to gather your hands around. And so this morning, I want us to walk through four realities of what it looks like to really be passionate about the local church. What it really means to be passionate and loving towards it and to lay our lives down for it. And as we do it, I want you to evaluate yourselves. I don't want you to think about other people in your gospel community or in your life and think, yes, they don't do very well. No, we're evaluating yourself in this moment. And as we evaluate ourselves, I truly want us to be encouraged and envisioned for just how glorious the local church really is. She is the bride of Christ and she's worthy of our passion. So what does it mean to be passionate about the local church? Well, four things, and here's the first I want you to make a note of. Number one, a person passionate about the church rejoices that it is God's plan to redeem a people. A person passionate about the church rejoices, they're thrilled, that it is God's plan to redeem a people. You know, one of the most beautiful things about God's plan for our lives is the reality that he not only saves individuals, but he brings us into the context of a community which is the church. He not only justifies us, he then joins us to other brothers and sisters and pulls us together into the context which is the local church. In Ephesians chapter 1, then verses 3, verse 6, which Andrew preached from a few weeks ago, we read this. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. You know, as that story goes on, the words he and him and in Christ appear again and again and again because Paul's point is it's all him. (laughs) He has done it all. Do you have to put your faith in Jesus Christ to become a Christian? Absolutely. But how do you ever come to do that? Well, because right at the bottom of it all, is his great sovereign grace in your life. His great call in your life. He has done it all. He has justified us by his grace. When the fullness of time came, he sent forth his sons that we could be forgiven and redeemed and assured that heaven is our home. And then in Ephesians 2, the very next chapter along, 
We discover that Jesus, by his grace, not only justifies us, but he then joins us to other believers. This is what we read in verses 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. As we saw last week, then we're no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens, members of the household of God, being built together into a temple of the Lord, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Here's my point. When you see that and examine that, you get to see how narrow and mistaken and incomplete the all-too-common lone ranger for Jesus approach to Christianity really is. It was never designed to be like that. He justifies and he joins. Lone ranger Christianity simply isn't in the Bible at all. There's no one in the Bible who's, I'm just a Christian out there by myself. I don't need a church. The Bible would look back at you and go, that's really weird and doesn't make sense at all. It's completely mistaken. You see, when you would look at the analogies of Scripture about the church, it would be like a brick in a field, and you go and have a chat to the brick. Imagine, play with me. You go and have a chat with the brick, and you're like, hey, how are you going? And you're like, hey, um, yeah, I'm going good. And you're like, oh, what are you doing? Because you're like, you're like a brick. And he's like, oh, no, no, no. I'm not a brick. I'm the temple of God. Mate, you're a brick. You need to be with other bricks for the temple. But that's what it would be like. It would be like a child who you encounter and you're like, hey, how are you going? You're clearly a child of God. This is amazing. And they go, no, no. I'm not just a child of God. I'm the family of God. It's just me, myself, and me, and I'm a family. No, bro, you're just a child. Or it would be like a finger. A finger by themselves. And you're like, hey, how are you going? You look like a finger. And they're like, oh, no, no. I'm more than a finger. I am the body of Christ. No, you're a finger. You can point, you can scratch, you can itch things. That's pretty impressive. But if you don't get joined to other things, you're just a finger by yourself. And No, no I got it. I'm a, I'm a body. Or a bride. You encounter a lady in a field in a wedding dress, and you ask her, what are you? You know, How are you going? And she goes, I'm the bride of Christ. You just be like, no, this is really odd. You're just a person. You need to be joined with others. Do you see how the analogies of Scripture of the church completely break down when when you're trying to do it? I'm just going to do it by myself. It doesn't even make sense. I'm not trying to ridicule the people that think that. I'm trying to ridicule the idea and the philosophy that that's even possible. Now, when you examine the Bible, you realize that God's grand design for salvation and his grand design for the church is so much bigger. We learn, as we saw last week, that it's together that we're the temple. He takes us from different bricks and different languages and builds us together into a dwelling place for God. Together we're the family of God. Brothers and sisters, moms and dads, aunties and uncles. Together we're a body. It's where that finger gets attached to a hand and an arm and a body. And now we start to actually do things for Jesus. And together we're a bride. That together, corporately, he died for and laid his life down for us. And I submit to you, a person passionate about the church, at a very foundational level, they rejoice that that's the reality. They don't want to be a lone ranger for Jesus. 
They rejoice that actually I'm just a brick or a finger or a part of a body. I'm called to be joined with others. And they're actually thrilled that that's the case. Let me ask you, do you rejoice that it was always God's plan to join you with others? Do you come on a Sunday thinking, I love this. It's amazing to me that he hasn't called me to do it by myself. It's why for me, I hate online church. Those are two words that should never go together because they actually don't make sense. The church are the called out ones to gather together. I ain't gathering with anybody on church online. I'm sitting there with my coffee by myself. That doesn't make sense. You come together, you gather. We will never have online church. If it wasn't for Brendan, I wouldn't even have a live stream. So praise God for Brendan, because it is helpful. But for me, it's like, no, we gather. We gather together. We come together, because it's when we gather, we're a temple and a family and a body. We come together. Festo Kevin Gary, the African bishop, says it this way. He says, the cutting of the stone is done, and you have been fitted in. That is how he is taking us, stones of all races and backgrounds and fitting us together into a beautiful dwelling place for God. Isn't that beautiful? A person passionate about the church, they recognize that and they understand. I rejoice that it has always been your plan to redeem a people. That's where the passion begins. And then it continues. Number two, a person passionate about the church views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. A person passionate about the church who truly loves her and wants to lay her life down for her building, they view their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. You know, when it comes to the importance and priority of serving, there's no greater text in the Bible from my perspective than Mark chapter 10, verses 35 to 45, And the words of Jesus himself. In Mark chapter 10, in fact by Mark chapter 10, Jesus has told them three times already, his disciples, that I'm going to go to Jerusalem. And when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be handed over to the chief priests and the scribes and they're going to kill me. Three times. Well, once again, the disciples playing the game of knuckleheads then say this to him. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. And said to him, in effect, yeah, thanks for that, Jesus, the dying thing. That's really weird. Anyway, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, well, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right and one at your left in your glory. I mean, talk about a mind-blowing moment. He's just told you when you get to Jerusalem, you're going to die. He's going to die. He's going to give his life away. And their response is, Yeah, I have no idea what you're talking about. But when you get there, I'm thinking, can I sit at your right and sit at your left? It's really odd. But in that tradition, it was all about position. I want position. They thought the Messiah was going to come and somehow overthrow the Romans. He would take his throne in Jerusalem. And so they're just thinking, can I get at your right and your left? We don't understand the death bit, but I want to have a place of position. It says that the other disciples in that moment were indignant. And you think at last, until you realize they are indignant because they hadn't asked him first. They want to sit at his right and his left. Well, Jesus, full of grace, full of truth, full of patience. And I'm always amazed at Jesus' patience. I wouldn't have the same patience, I don't think. I've just told my best friends that I'm going to die. And they're asking me about where they're going to sit. What? 
Well, Jesus then talks to them in his grace and his mercy about what true greatness really is. And it ain't position. He says this to them. In Mark 10, verses 42 to 45, he says, And so Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Isn't it beautiful? He helps re-educate his disciples, which is you today. Re-educate the true greatness isn't about position. True greatness is about service. It's about laying your life down for people. And being bothered about people and seeking to serve them. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what Paul then does is pick up on this in Ephesians chapter 4. And he begins to then pull the curtains back on one of the most important and primary places to indeed practice this true greatness. To practice this service and practice this laying of our lives down. Because in Ephesians 4 verse 16, this is what he says. He says, from him, the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So what you see is you're not only justified by the Lord Jesus Christ, you're then joined into a family of believers and then you're called to play a part. See, one of the things when you examine just the book of Ephesians alone, although it repeats it in other places in the Bible, one of the things you realize is that it is so important for a Christian then to get connected and committed into a local church. And they're not my words, they're right here in Ephesians chapter 4. Through the words joined and held together and every joint, you get this idea and picture that, well, that would involve commitment and connection. It would have to be people I know and understanding the part I play, and I'm connected in, and I'm committed, and I'm just a lone ranger for Jesus. I'm actually a real part of this, because I have a part to play, and I'm connected, and I am committed. Chuck Colson, in his wonderful book, The Body, says this about this reality. He says, every believer is part of the universal church, but for any Christian who has a choice in the matter... Failure to cleave to a local church is failure to obey Christ. For it is only through a confessing local body of believers that we carry out the work of the church in the world. It is within the local church that we commit ourselves to intimate relationships with fellow believers and submit ourselves to accountability, duties, and responsibilities. And it is within this community that our Christian character is shaped and our spiritual gifts are developed and exercised. It's so true. It's in the local church, the local illustration of the universal church that actually we get joined and held together by every joint. And it's there that as we use our gifts, they are developed and exercised. It's so important then that we make sure we get connected to a local church. And then it's so important that we rightly play our parts. Isn't it? Because quite evidently, biblically defined, we all have a part to play. In 1 Corinthians chapter 12, we discover that to each is given a gift for the common good. What does that mean? 
What it means is local churches gather but every joint in a connected and committed way. And as they play their part, then guess what? The local church up is built in love. It's built. It grows. It grows numerically. It grows spiritually. It grows in depth. You know, I thank God for the way you serve as a local church. It's amazing to me, the way you serve. I mean, if you just were to put a, a camera up on a Sunday morning and see all that takes place, that's just a Sunday. It's overwhelming. Musicians and PA guys arriving 7.45, 8 o'clock, getting set up, pulling everything out. Whole team coming to set up chairs to walk out uh, the different signs and set different things up. Then all the kids' workers come out. You know, a third of our church is out there every week being cared for, being ministered to, being discipled, being helped. Somebody's making tea and coffee or hot chocolate for me. Thank you so much. And then at the end, the whole team start to pack down and other people are praying with people and other people are encouraging people are getting around. That's just a Sunday morning. There are so many parts at work taking place. It, it's wonderful. And it is such a joy to see in the way that takes place. We thank God as your pastoral team for the way you serve. You do, so, you do it so wonderfully. And listen, for me, I'm excited about the year ahead. I'm excited about the young leaders internships that we have going on this year. There's nine folks signed up for that. We're going to have nine young people who we're going to be able to equip in the gospel, equip in doctrine, and seek to deploy them ever increasingly in serving in the local church, in this body, in this bride, that we may be building it up in love. I'm excited about that. I'm also excited about the serve refresh forms that many of you have been filling in. We've had about 50 or 60 of them so far. Thank you for doing that. The whole point of us doing that is we want to work out what part do you feel called to play? Because we can kind of guess, but there's slightly too many here to be able to guess. So it was something that actually Brendan led us in so wonderfully as a pastoral team and came up with a model for how we can find out more about the parts that are playing. We thank God for that. It's still taking us time to get through those. So if you're like, well, no one's called me. Uh, no one's called a few people. <laughs> you know, we're still pulling them together and gathering them together. Um, Andrew and Austin now are obviously working part-time and they're also going to be part of the process of keeping people in the right places. But there has already been some developments with that. For example, Michael Sullivan. His came in. I would love to help to organize men's events. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Josh is part of the places. He's clapping. So feel free to respond or not. It's entirely up to you. He does it in our house as well. We just, we just leave him. But Michael Sullivan, we would have never known, never known that Michael had a real heart to help run men's events. What do we do? We say, thank you, Jesus. And we call him, yes, please. And suddenly he's organizing things and he's jumping on things. You think, what a blessing. It's a part that he's playing to help us build community in our local church. His fiance, Ellie. Emma came home from the gingerbread house and she just said to me too, she said, gingerbread house went well. Ellie is amazing. Because she has a gift. A gift of organizing events, a gift of pulling people together and making it happen. Praise God for that. We would have never known if she hadn't flagged, hey, this is something I actually might have a gift in. We'd love to explore. And say, Thank you, Jesus. So I want to encourage you. For the rest of you, if you haven't filled them in, please fill them in. Because it's helping us work out. Where do you feel gifted? Where do you feel you're meant to be playing a part? We want to release everybody as much as we can to be playing their parts in the local church. One of the things on there is even like, okay, do I want to serve as a kid's teacher or a kid's helper? It's interesting to see how people go on that. Some people really feel called to, I want to teach kids. Other people, please don't give me a Bible. I just want to do craft. That's fine. 
It's just understanding where is everybody meant to be playing their part. And it's important. Why? Because it's as we play our parts that the body builds itself up in love. It's as we play our parts that we will more fully reflect Jesus Christ in our community. Arthur Wallace, who was one of my spiritual heroes growing up, he was more in the charismatic movement, which is what I grew up in. And I was probably about 17 when I heard him say this. He says, if you want to do, do the best with your life, then find out what God is doing in your generation and throw yourself into it. I remember even at 17 thinking, all right, I'm going to find out what he's doing in my generation. You know what I discovered? Here's what he's doing in your generation. Here's what he's been doing in every generation. He's laying his life down for his bride and he's building the church. He's building a church, a temple and a body and a bride that he will return to and through which he is called to be the vehicle through which the gospel goes to the entire world. If you're serious about doing something with your life, give your life away to the church because that's what he did as well. A person passionate about the church views their gifts and abilities as resources to serve the church. The church doesn't just get the leftovers. They understand maybe God has wired me a certain way and given me certain gifts because actually primarily the way I'm meant to use that is the church so that this body, this eternal body, may grow and build itself up in love. Number three, the third thing that a person passionate about the church is aware of. Number three, a person passionate about the church is aware of how much they need the church. How much they need it. You see, in a very real sense, the church is an army. And as I concluded that last point, that's obviously this sense you get from me. It's this sense that we've got to go, we've got to tell people about Jesus, and we have a part to play. That's true. And in another sense, the church is a family. It's a group of people that are moms and dads and aunties and uncles and brothers and sisters as we do life together and as part of being a family. At times as well, the church does indeed resemble a hospital. And it should. See, look around. I don't know what you see, but here's what I see, beginning with the pastoral team and then moving on to you. What you discover is I don't perceive that the Lord has brought together a group of superheroes there. This is not movie world. I don't perceive that the Lord has gathered together here a group of perfect, independent, super-Christians that need no help at all. Now here's what I perceive. God is to gather together a people with deficiencies, with weaknesses, and with challenges. And says, hey listen, I'm bringing you here. Because you need them. And they need you. See, in all reality, that's the way God has designed it. Reuben Welsh, as I said last week, he simply says it really isn't Jesus and me, but Jesus and we. It's so true. When we are sad and we are disappointed, we all need Jesus, don't we? We need Jesus. But I need somebody with bones and skin over those bones to come towards me and be Jesus to me as well. That's often how Jesus ministers to me. Through people. When we are confused and when we are distracted, we need Jesus, but we need somebody to be Jesus to us, don't we? To spur us on, to encourage us, to tell us to keep going, that it'll be okay, that God is faithful. 
When we are tired and we are all out of steam, we need Jesus, but we also need somebody to pray for us and care for us and to stand with us and encourage us. It's almost like God designed it this way. Here's why it's almost like God designed it this way. He did. He did design it that way. He brought us together as a local church because we need one another. One story that I think illustrates that reality so well is a wonderful story from Donald Gray Barnhouse, the famous American preacher and pastor and theologian. And here's what he says. Several years ago, two students graduated from Chicago Kent College of Law. The highest ranking student in the class was a blind man named Overton. And when he received his honor, he insisted that half of the credit go to his friend, Caprizac. They had met one another in school when the armless Mr. Caprizac had guided the blind Mr. Overton down a flight of stairs. The acquaintance ripened into a friendship and a beautiful example of interdependence. The blind man carried the books, which the armless man read aloud in their common study. And thus the individual deficiency of each was compensated by the other. After their graduation, they planned to practice law together. He goes on actually to tell them that they did actually open a practice together. And they did practice law together. Understanding that they both needed one another to get the job done. Here's the thing. This room is filled with Mr. Overton's and Mr. Caprizac's. We all have deficiencies. We all have blind spots. We all have things that we can't do, that we can't quite manage. And God says, that's okay. I designed it that way. So I'm putting you together with others into a family. You know, maybe you're here and you just think, well, you know what, I'm fine. I've got friends out of the church. I'll be fine. I'm good. Well, then you are also profoundly selfish. Because whether you think you need others or not, maybe others need you. Maybe there's other people in this church that need you to be present and to be available and to encouraging. And I would want to push back on you ever so gently and say, maybe you do need them more than you think. Maybe you're missing out on a whole load of things that you never even saw because you never really got involved. See, a person passionate about the church is aware, I think, of how much they need the church. They go to bed at night thanking God for the church, not because they think, oh, I'm so grateful to play my part and I'm so thrilled that I get to do this. They have that, but they're also very aware, oh Lord, I thank you for the church. I thank you that you put these people in my life. Where would I be without them? And when they're saying them, there's different faces and names coming to their minds of people that have impacted them. You're never going to be passionate about something you don't really care about. And a person passionate about the church is very aware of how much I need the church and is therefore grateful for them. And then finally, number four, a person passionate about the church builds their life around the church. You know, I'm aware when I say that, it, it can seem like a, such a strange comment. To some, it can be like, what a weird thing to say. It's like, you know, I go to Coles, but I don't build my life around coals, you know, what, what, what do you mean? Well, the church ain't coals. See, if the church and what we've talked about today is true, if Jesus really is the one who chose us even before the foundation of the earth, 
If he chose your name and at the right time sent forth his son for you, and then if Jesus really is the one who called you into the church, he didn't just justify you, but then joined you with other believers. And if he really did give you gifts and abilities for you to play for the building up of the church, so that you may play your part. And if the church really is the center of God's plan of redemption, it is the bride with which he laid his life down for, and it's the body that now reflects him in our world and our community. And if we really do desperately need the church, then I submit to you that as Christians, that should surely affect everything else in our lives. And it should indeed make a radical reality to how the church fits into our lives. If it really is all the Bible says it is, then where the church fits, I think, should have a radical difference in our lives. John Stott, in his wonderful commentary to the Ephesians, says it this way. He says, if the church is central to God's purpose, as seen in both history and the gospel, then it must surely also be central to our lives. For how can we take so lightly what God takes so seriously? And how dare we push to the circumference what God has placed at the center? He then continues. In decision making, God wants to guide us. He is not any less concerned about where you're going to work or where you're going to live or where you're going to ma- or who you're going to marry. Or he- and he will guide you if you seek and follow him. But don't make decisions outside of understanding that God's church is at the center of his passion and plan. For it is outside of this nucleus that he will reveal to you where you are to be. My friends, if everything we've talked about today is true about the church, then how dare we push to the circumference of our lives, just seeing how we can fit it in when we can. How dare we do that? And we understand he said, no, I've justified you and now I've called you to join you. This is the center. This is the way it is. This is your life. See, one of the challenges that we can all face at different times, certainly for us in the West, is we can so often, I think, think of a church more like we do high school. See, none of us build our lives around high school, do we? Because we're passing through. <laughs> we're there for a bit. And then we're going to graduate and we are going to move on. And so we don't build our lives around high school. We go for years and then we graduate. And so throughout the entire time we're present at high school, we're thinking one step ahead. We're thinking, I love school, but I'm only here for now. I'm just passing through. And so we don't build at high school. I mean, no one ever says, I'm passionate about high school. I'm going to build the school. No one ever says that. No, you just attend. You like date high school and you get through it before you move on. And where there is a low ecclesiology, which in my opinion is Sydney, we can think like that. We can think of the local church like a high school or a soccer club. It's good for now, but there's other ones up the road, and I'll just go and join another one. Oh, there's another school. Yeah, in fact, it's just, I'm going to graduate soon. We just push to the circumference. What God places at the center. What he says, this is your life. This is your, look around, this is your family. This is the body that I've given you a gift to Use for my glory. This is my bride that I died for. Don't don't treat it like just some afterthought. She's central. I laid my life down for her. And I joined you to her. 
It's so easy to think of church like high school. And in in all honesty, she's so much more than that, is she not? She stands as a bride at the center of God's great plan of redemption. And he called you into her to play your part. And so I want to ask you, if Jesus is so passionate about the church, then does your life reflect a similar passion for the church? He's called us to be imitators of him in Ephesians 5 verse 1. And he calls us to be conformed into the image of his son in Romans 8 29. The whole premise is, Lord, if you're passionate about that, I want to be passionate whatever you're passionate about. And make no mistake, he is passionate about the church. Does your life reflect a similar passion for the church? Listen, if it does, then praise God for that. And for many of you, I think it does. And it is a wonderful evidence of grace in your life. It is an evidence of God work in your life through the Holy Spirit. So that as you read these things and hear these things, there's things that you think, yeah, I could probably grow there. But overarchingly, you're like, yes, I love the church. That is an evidence of his work in your life. And I thank God for that. But if, as you honestly assess yourself, you think, no. No, I don't think my life does reflect a similar passion. I don't think of the church that way. I don't think about laying my life down for the church. I just tag along when I can. Well, my friends, if that's you, then I want to exhort you. There is so much more for you. There's so much more for you to do. And there's so much that you're missing out on. And I want to encourage you then, by the grace of God, to allow grace-motivated change begin to take place in your life today. Grace-motivated Why does it need to be motivated? Well, because the church is the Savior's bride. It's a bride that he chose from eternity past. It is a bride that he set his affections upon, brought back from sin and death, and even now gently sanctifies and cleanses her, preparing her for himself. Jesus is truly, madly in love and passionate with the church. And so by his grace, may we be too. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is a joy and a privilege to have once again reviewed your passion for the church. Lord, as we consider in our mind's eye that groom's face looking at his bride, Lord, would we never fail to realize that's just a dim reflection of how you feel about your bride. Lord, would no one in the room be guessing how passionate for the church you are? Would we behold Calvary and stand in awe of you? And Lord, would you help us then by your grace and through your spirit to become more like you? Lord, would you forgive us for times in our lives when we have pushed to the circumference what actually you've placed at the center? Would you forgive us for times when we're not even thinking about using our gifts and abilities in the church because we're too busy using them in 101 other things? But Lord, would you help us to be a people that realize you've not just justified us, you've joined us. You've given us a temple to be a brick in. You've given us a body to play our part in. You've given us a family to stand with. And together as we stand arm in arm, we are together 
your bride. So help us to be passionate about what you're passionate about. And would we then unleash a power through your spirit to do something wonderful in a generation to build the local church. In Jesus' name, amen.